for some pieces, I'm interested in, you know, what happens when you create something by hand that could be done by machine, and what does it mean to invest that amount of labor into a piece? Of course, it's inherently imperfect and uh, a little bit wonky if you make something by hand, but I think that it can, that in and of itself can have some sort of a potent message, like just simply laboring over something is an act that means something, and um, it's, it kind of runs counter to how we generally live our lives. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 189th episode, we're joined once again by Diana Baumbach, who has last heard on Studio Break episode two nearly seven years ago. So we're very excited to have her back on and to talk about some of the new processes that she's been working through out in Laramie, Wyoming, some of the collaborations and materials, and of course, all that will be coming up. You can see some of the work on this blog post, but you can also see more of her work at dianabaumbach.com. So please do that before you listen to the interview. And of course, just a note to any new listeners, Studio Break is a podcast and blog site. We feature a variety of different artists. They come on and share all sorts of insight into their studio practice. Of course, you can listen to our episodes right on studiobreak.com. Go through all the posts, check out the work, listen to an episode there, or just click that iTunes link and subscribe to the podcast. It's very easy. We do provide links to the artist's websites so you can dive in and look for more info and more artwork as well so please be sure to do that and we do have a lot of archives again 189 episodes so you can go look on the left sidebar and scroll back through old episodes that way so please do that as well you can find us on a variety of social media platforms so please like our facebook page you can follow us on twitter at studio break and on instagram at studio underscore break Studio Break is made possible in part by generous support from the Osage Arts Community, which is a proud sponsor of Studio Break. Osage Arts Community is an artist residency that provides temporary time, space, and support for the creation of new artistic work in a retreat format, serving creative people of all kinds, including visual artists, composers, poets, fiction, and nonfiction writers. Osage is located on a 180-acre working farm in the rural mountainside setting of central Missouri, bordered by the lovely Gasconade River. OAC provides residencies to those working alone, as well as welcoming collaborative teams, offering living space and workspace in a country environment to emerging and mid-career artists. Interested parties should visit Osage Arts Community's website for more information as they are now accepting applications for the 2018 season. Osage Arts Community, where land, art, and community ignite. And with announcements out of the way, here is our interview with Diana. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break. Diana Baumbach, how are you doing? Hi, Dave. I'm really good. How are you doing? Excellent. We've been dealing with audio issues, of course, and uh, yeah. <laughs> reminiscing. It's been uh, quite a long time, and of course, I, I did uh, visit you all out in Wyoming last summer. But again, we got a lot to, a lot of ground to cover. So, but just to get us started, uh, so we're, you're from Chicago originally, and I guess we can kind of move forward yeah. from there. Yeah. 
So I grew up in Oak Park, and I lived there until I was 16, and I actually went to college when I was 16. I went to Indiana University in Bloomington, but I only stayed there a year, and then I transferred to Washington University in St. Louis. And then I took a little bit of time off between undergrad and grad school and met you at uh, Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. And then after that, I moved across the country to um, teach at the University of Wyoming. And I came here thinking it would be maybe a one-year gig. And 11 years later, <laughs> I'm still here. Um, but things have, uh, of course, evolved a lot since I first arrived in Wyoming. And it has turned out to be a really good match for me. Excellent, excellent. Well, and again, a lot to unpack and, and delve into the past. Um, I'm curious, especially now that we've known each other for so long, too, and just kind of, you know, seeing, you know, all the work that you have. Of course, everybody can visit dianabombach.com, you know, to see some of your uh, pieces as well as installations and projects. But I'm curious, you know, a lot of a lot of people that I talk to maybe like uh, draw and, you know, you know, are kind of creative growing up, but I'm, I'm curious, especially, you know, what kind of angle you might have had on it. Cause I just imagine you wandering around like, um, I don't know, fabric stores, craft stores, uh, maybe getting lost and <laughs> just, yeah. I don't know, just kind of playing with materials. But it's so funny that you say that because yeah, there's really some truth in that. I actually, I mean, I grew up in a creative household. My mom was a muralist and so she had her studio at home and, um, I was used to, you know, being around materials for making things. But um, when I was younger, I had more of an interest in performance and dance. But along with that, I became interested in uh, costuming and, you know, what went into building a garment. So um, I, I guess my creative interest began more in terms of, like I said, ballet um, and performance and then also thinking about like costume and fashion design and I literally was that kid who was walking around um, all of the awesome fabric shops in Chicago and spending my Saturday night whipping up a dress to wear to school <laughs> the next week um, and I was always really content um, like making things and uh, you know that, that really interested me but initially in terms of working with my hands I was initially interested in making functional objects well now I don't make anything that's really all that functional but I think that you know my interest in terms of working with certain materials and textiles for sure uh, started you know when I was thinking about like costuming and fashion design and things like that as a high school kid and that's actually what I went to college for but um, you know things change and I decided to shift away from that but, but yeah that's kind of the kid that I was, the wacky fashion kid. <laughs> well, I just imagine some sort of like mathematical formula in terms of like playing around with patterns or, you know, things like that just relative to the, to the current work almost. I just, you know what I mean? I don't know why I just kind of, I'm, I'm so curious about like, you know, even things like the idea of, you know, the, the colors that you kind of use. I mean, again, you kind of have like a very kind of muted uh, palette within your work. So mm -hmm. even, again, maybe totally irrelevant, but I'm just like, what kind of costumes, you know? Because I'm thinking <laughs> of like, I don't know, like something that a kid might do is just be, you know, super colorful as opposed to something that's kind of muted. Um, I don't yeah. know. 
So Well, I mean, I think that, you know, it's interesting that you say that because when I was making a lot of clothing, frequently I would start by working from a pattern. And I think that in a way that does really relate to a lot of the work I've made over the last 10 years um, in thinking about how planar materials can attach and relate to each other when they become volumetric, like thinking about how those shapes can come together and fit together, just as they do when you're thinking about like working from a flat pattern to make, you know, something wearable. So I think there's totally a connection there. And then, you know, I think just in terms of like where my influences come from, I think, you know, for a long time, I've been looking at things like fashion and interior design and industrial design and stuff like that. And that impacts me just as much as looking at contemporary artists. Um, so I don't know, in terms of like the aesthetics of the design work that I'm more drawn to, I think I'm definitely much more drawn to work with like a more subdued kind of limited palette. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that really answers your question, no, but I think it does. that's how those things come into play. Well, and I'm curious then too, because because there's obviously a, a transition or change to kind of, you know, go from wanting to kind of be involved with dance, uh, you know, to fine art. So was there anything in particular that, um, I don't know, kind of propelled you to that? Like when you started undergraduate, um, even even in Indiana, I mean, was that something that you were pursuing at the time or were you already kind of thinking, no, fine art or design or? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I just kind of realized that there was a really, really limited lifespan in being a dancer. Um, Your body wears out fast. I mean, even at that age, I was suffering injuries and things like that, um, which it just made it really hard to envision what might lie ahead um, in terms of like having a sustained creative life as opposed to a creative brief period of my life. And so um, that played a pretty big role in terms of moving from dance to visual art. I just sort of was able to see a future that had more longevity uh, in terms of like, you know, how my body could change as it got older and would change and how I would be able to just make that part of my working process as opposed to, you know, dancers. I have a lot of friends that are still in that field, but all of them have retired and retired a while ago. And so that I just, I I don't know, that was kind of hard to wrap my mind around. And so it just didn't seem like the right match for me. But it's interesting because I've recently in the last couple of years reconnected with some of my friends who did continue to pursue dance. And um, I recently collaborated on a project with a woman that I used to dance with. And I, to kind of bring it full circle, um, I worked with her. I did uh, some of the costuming and um, lighting design for a project that she choreographed. So it's been really interesting to reconnect with that part of my past, but in um, a more visual way as opposed to performance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And again, in, in terms of your, your experience then at Wash U, um, I yeah. know that you obviously had experience uh, as a printmaker, but I'm curious yeah. then, did you have other opportunities to kind of explore like textile or like fabric, to, fabric kind of like making and or, I guess, I don't know, more of like a materials driven slash design kind of interest than say someone that's going to be drawing you know, uh, still lives of fruit or, you know, something like that. Yes and no. So the program at Washington University, I'm not sure exactly if it's still like this, but when I was there, 
there was a strong emphasis on papermaking as well as printmaking. The two went hand in hand. And I think there are a lot of obvious connections between paper and textiles, just thinking about some of the same types of fibers, um, just the materiality of both of those things. And so I did work with um, papermaking somewhat. Um, alongside printmaking. And um, one of my professors in undergrad, who at the time, um, we didn't work that closely together, but I think, you know, in retrospect, she really had a pretty big um, impact on my work. Uh, her name is Joan Hall, and she's no longer at Washington University, but um, she worked a lot with handmade paper, but thinking about it in a very sort of physical way, and a lot of her work with paper actually reads more like work with textiles. Um, so I think that, you know, although my degree is in printmaking, um, it, it wasn't a super, super traditional printmaking program, um, because there, like I said, there was a lot of paper making involved. Um, and then also a lot, not a lot of additioning, but rather a lot of like experimentation with materials. So it was pretty, I mean, it was pretty broad, I would say, thinking about like the possibilities of what print could include and not really, I didn't feel bound to making traditional prints. I didn't take any, you know, textile design classes, but I think the paper making definitely has kind of come in and fed my work. And actually it's something that I will be hopefully uh, picking up again on some future projects that I'm working on. So it's, it's something I haven't done in many years, but it's kind of something that's on the horizon with a couple different projects I have. Well, and so it seems like that material exploration then has always been kind of like the central drive. You know, I was, I was going to ask you, like, yeah. you know, what, you know, what kind of, um, you know, work you were making, you know, you know, post uh, undergrad. But again, kind of being there for that experience, again, I, I've always known at the time anyways, you know, that it's always been that kind of like real formal you know, patterns slash designs. So it's kind of interesting to think about it now and, and to kind of unpack that. Um, I'm curious, especially, you know, is it something even, in a, and I know that we'll kind of like rehash some of this stuff before we move into, you know, that <laughs> that time between uh, the last 10 years. Um, right. <laughs> but, um, you know, in terms of like being able to kind of like start a creative process, even in graduate school, I mean, was that always then, you know, just kind of like working with the material or is it something that's kind of designed and planned out or I guess what kind of like starts those ideas for you at the time? And obviously we can unpack how that's changed, but. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that to be perfectly honest, I was still figuring a lot of stuff out in grad school. I feel like my studio practice didn't really fully click and kind of mature until after graduate school for me. Um, so I, I think I was stumbling about a lot still when I was uh, in grad school. But um, beyond grad school, I think that things have just kind of become more fluid and it sort of depends on whether I'm taking on a particular project or just kind of like working on a lar larger body of work in my studio. But I think that I'm, I'm definitely driven by materials and process more often than not. I, I try to <laughs> kind of structure things so that I have some work that is kind of somewhat pre-planned and is just somewhat labor intensive so that I, I know I can dedicate, just simply dedicate time um, to executing a piece, and that affords me time to think about how that piece 
might kind of grow into the next thing. So um, I'm actually not, I think I probably used to be more of a planner than I am now, whereas now I think that I really try to listen more to what's happening in, in a studio and be more responsive um, and give myself that space to kind of regroup or shift paths or whatever. But I, I think there are still projects I take on, like uh, commissioned work or, or public art projects, where I must be really, um, it, it's just far more regimented in terms of like, you know, here's the proposal, here's the budget, here are the maquettes, here are the material trials, you know what I mean? And then carrying it out within budget. So I kind of, I don't know, I work in two different veins. I guess for bigger projects that are like commissioned, I, I really do have to plan things out and then sort of just execute the plan. Um, and then for other studio work that isn't kind of along those lines, um, I try to be more responsive, I guess, and just kind of um, listen to the materials as I'm working. To kind of think back, uh, you know, to, I guess, the the type of artist that you kind of looked at and thought, like, I could make work like this or that or I could try this new exploration in terms of like an installation were there any artists in particular that um, kind of stick out to you that it kind of really I don't know changed the way that you thought about what you could make yeah there are a couple of people um, the first person that comes to mind is actually not a visual artist but actually a fashion designer and that's um, Isabel Toledo, and I really, I've looked at her work for so many years and really admired it for a couple of reasons. I think, again, formally, just thinking about how shapes work together. Um, I think she's a real master of of thinking that way and thinking about, again, how a planar material can become volumetric and how you can sort of build sort of wearable sculpture using simple materials like fabric. Um, and then the other thing about her that I really, really admire is how much um, the creative process is integrated into just her daily life. So I think that has always really influenced me. And uh, she's also married to another artist, So, and I'm also married to an artist. So um, I think, you know, Isabel Toledo for not only her work, but also her, the way that she lives her life, I think that's for a long, long time, probably since I was in high school. Um, she's been a big influence. Another person who has been an influence, but I, I don't know her personally, despite the fact that she, for a long time, lived in my hometown, is um, Michelle Grabner. I really, again, it's kind of the same sort of a thing um, in terms of not only admiring her work on many levels, um, and I, I think just her work on its own is really powerful. But I also admire the other things about how she lives her life in terms of like being a mother and being a teacher and um, her projects with curation and writing and um, her you know, gallery projects that have been really close to home, like the suburban and, and other projects that she's taken on. So I think the people that have been like really long-term influences that I, I really, really admire are those who um, not only make really, really amazing work, but also have other aspects of their life, lives that I find impressive or something to aspire to. So I guess those would be a couple people that I've looked at for a really long time. 
Well, and again, to kind of think about it in terms of like a uh, a narrative of your uh, studio slash life and <laughs> all those transitions, um, what was it like? That I mean, obviously, living in um, Carbondale or Murfreesboro, Illinois, is uh-huh. uh, a bit rural, and obviously, yeah. moving from Chicago or St. Louis to to a place yeah. like that is different. But obviously, moving out out west and maybe like you were hinting at before, not thinking you were going to be out there forever. Um, right. I don't know. I guess now that we can kind of look at it. In the rear view, but I'm especially curious, you know, what what you know what that move out there is kind of like done, especially in terms of like how things change, because I'd, I'd imagine that it happened pretty quickly. Yeah, it did, and interestingly enough, like I said, I, I really it, it took moving here and kind of feeling a little bit displaced for me to really kind of find my place in the studio, and oddly enough, in the time that I've lived here, I really. This is going to sound funny, but I've never really felt like I've fit in very well um, on a lot of different levels. Um, culturally, I feel like, again, I'm, I'm from Chicago and then I lived in St. Louis for a while. So I feel like my background is just different than the majority of the population. But also um, I teach at the university here and I'm kind of somewhat of an outlier on the faculty um, in that it's a pretty traditional program that I teach within. And um a lot of my work doesn't really kind of fit very neatly into a category. And so I think that, as strange as this sounds, it's, it's a funny thing because it is really awesome to be surrounded by peers and to be influenced by those around you. But I, I think that for me, it, it kind of took taking a step away and that kind of isolation for me to find my own voice. I think that certainly like living in a city, you're bombarded with stuff to look at and think about and I guess it was always a little bit harder for me to kind of pull out my own voice when there were so many others. And by sort of stepping into an environment that was just a lot quieter, you know, there aren't a lot of people in Wyoming and mm-hmm. not a lot happening in terms of uh, much of an art scene. But I think that that's actually that sort of, I don't know, it's forced me to think about how I engage with other artists and what I look at. And it's also forced me to kind of like not not have too many influences in my life. And for me, that's been a really good thing. Um, Of course, it's always good to reconnect with other artists and like, you know, re-engage with the larger world from time to time. But I think that, um, yeah, moving out here, it's not like I was overtly influenced by the landscape or anything like that. But I think just like what it means to be an artist in Wyoming, it's, you know, like I said, pretty somewhat isolating, which um, for me has actually kind of been a good thing. Um, I think it also is interesting because it it feels more like being a a bigger fish in a smaller pond, Mm -hmm. Um, whereas it's, I don't know, for me, it was very easy to felt like I was kind of getting lost when I lived in larger communities. I'm curious then, too, because, you know, you you kind of talked a little bit about the process of you know, making more traditional things and then also kind of making, I guess, more pieces that were unplanned or I would assume those are the pieces maybe that are kind of more installation based. But Mm -hmm. it also makes me think about like that repetition because I I have memories of like, you know, just like stacks of like particular, you know, cuts of paper or, Mm -hmm. you know, again, there's there's pieces that I know that you've made where there's just like, you know, thousands and thousands of holes poked into a piece of paper. Right. Um, right. So I don't know, is, is I guess a lot of that material exploration just also kind of 
just exploring whatever whatever this i guess design motif or pattern or um i don't know almost ritual or you know just whatever whatever that repetition is until you kind of like decide how you're going to kind of resolve it or begin to then to kind of like piece it together to see what it could be yeah so i mean i don't keep a sketchbook or anything like that but i do work in like stacks of loose bits of paper (laughs) So, I mean, I feel like that's my the closest I come to keeping a sketchbook. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's really a big part of my practice is just playing and experimenting and um, having lots of little small-scale trials that kind of uh, start to take me in a direction. And then, again, just sort of like listening to where that might be going. Um, and then... I do. I mean, admittedly, I do like doing the same thing over and over again. So I I don't know. I think that for some pieces, I'm interested in, you know, what happens when you create something by hand that could be done by machine? And what does it mean to invest that amount of labor into a piece? Of course, it's inherently imperfect and uh, a little bit wonky if you make something by hand. But I think that it can that in and of itself can be kind of a, a potent me- have some sort of a potent message. Like just simply laboring over something is an act that means something, and um, it's, it kind of runs counter to how we generally live our lives. And so um, I think that yeah, in a lot of my work, I do um, sort of design scenarios where. I uh, take on really labor-intensive processes. So, for example, even going back to, I, I was mentioning, I worked on some costuming for a project this last year, and I, I probably came up with, like, the least efficient way of doing it. I printed all of these patterns, and so it was yardage that was really super, super wide. And I mean, I printed yard upon yard, but I had these small little components that I carved, and I hand-printed every little component like layering and measuring out and I came up with this whole tape method and it was one of those things where I could have silk screened it and it would have taken you know a couple hours or I could have done it the way I did which was just extremely complicated and extremely like like I said just you know the least efficient method I could have possibly come up with But I think there's something to be said for like, you know, really like sitting with that fabric for a long, long time and lovingly um, building this pattern that could have just as easily been mass produced, but it wasn't. And in the end, it had a certain really nice tactile quality to it because I was literally like pushing my body weight into this fabric, which just, I don't know, it impacted the way that ink sat on the fabric and and again, it was sort of, there would be moments where it would skew and kind of not be perpendicular anymore. And I would have to like skew it back to become perpendicular. So um, I don't know. I, again, I think that like I oftentimes find these scenarios that allow me to engage in these laborious, repetitive processes. But I find that to be really, really satisfying. Yeah, it's interesting, too, to think about the idea, again, a handmade, um, especially when the work you know, in general, looks so, you know, craft-oriented in terms of it being, you know, very precise and meticulous. Um, But does that kind of irregularity also kind of find its way in there? I mean, I would imagine, again, just, you know, like when you're, um, I don't know, working through a design where you've got something that's repeated 
Um, and again, there's a number of pieces that kind of have like almost like a diamond shape kind of pattern, um, mm-hmm. or you know, like a lot of the components kind of fit together in some sort of pattern. Um, is there something that kind of is more apparent too in terms of like when you kind of come up close to it to see uh, like more variation, and as opposed to you know, like I would imagine, like you know, from a distance, a lot of things wind up looking a little bit more muted, and then, you know, in a right. lot of your pieces, you've got all these details where, when you really get up close, you see that there's all these different layers or, you know, different materials affixed to it. Yeah, yeah, I am interested in that. You know, how viewing distance impacts the way you perceive or read a piece. And one thing that I've been playing with recently, um, I've just been thinking a lot, well, actually, I shouldn't say recently, because I was thinking about this in graduate school as well, um, is just, you know, like different lighting effects and how that can impact a piece too. So I've been making some pieces that have um, cut vinyl, like white cut vinyl on the plexi that is kind of part of the framing device. So then when it's when the pieces are lit, um, shadows are cast. So the shadow becomes part of the piece too. Um, so again, you know, from a distance, you might think like, oh, that's just kind of a, you know, dark gray mark. But then as you come closer, you realize, oh, that is, has a very different quality. It's a shadow, a cast shadow, as opposed to you know, a slick piece of vinyl. Um, and then also I've, I made a piece recently that, or I've made a, a number of pieces that really re- are reliant on um, sort of fluorescent glowing effects. So again, just like, I, I guess from a distance, you know, you might think, oh, that's just kind of an orangey piece. And then as you get closer to it, um, it kind of um, has this glowing effect that just sort of makes you question, like, where is that coming from? Is it backlit? Is it like what you know what's happening and I think there is a subtlety to that and I'm interested in that subtlety I think that effects that are slightly more subtle do maybe not everyone catches them but uh, it does again make you slow down in a similar way to my process of making my work forces how that kind of forces me to slow down so um yeah I mean most of what I make isn't really all that flashy or in, in your face but um I think that it, it kind of requires a minute to take it all in. Um, and some of it, like I said, can be pretty subtle. Right, right. And and again, in terms of like the, a lot of the more uh, traditional looking pieces seem like they're, um, I, I don't know, I guess more of like a human scale. And then a lot of the installations obviously seem like they kind of encompass more of a space. Um, so could you yeah. talk a little bit about the, the kind of relationship between the two? I mean, you've kind of, yeah. kind of talked about it already, but... No, that's something I've been thinking a lot about. And yeah, I mean, I I find that I'm drawn towards working in those two ways you just described, like making work that is relatively smaller scale and similar in scale to my body. So not huge. Um, And then and just the ease that that allows, you know, there are things on a smaller scale, it's just a lot easier to make pieces like that. Um, And that really happens in my studio, um, whereas I also like to sort of simultaneously be taking on projects that sort of go well beyond what I as a singular person can take on or handle, and um, in some cases, tend to 
sort of require more people become involved, whether it's um, like working actually with fabricators or working with a team of installers or whatever it may be. So I'm interested in that, like the difference, the different experience of working really small and working really large. And I think that, you know, one thing I would love to do in the future is um, really find more ways to make my pieces that tend to be a little bit larger, just to make them more collaborative in their actual execution. So maybe to involve more hands in the making process. Since again, like labor and time is really important to me. Um, I think, I don't know, there's just potential there to really utilize many hands to make a larger scale kind of collaborative piece. Um, I don't know if that really makes any sense. No, I think that does. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that sometimes when I work larger, I've sort of out of necessity been forced to shift my method. So like working with like cut vinyl, that's not always cut by hand. Sometimes it is, but sometimes like I did a piece a couple years ago that was like 17 feet by 10 feet and it was all like very intricate cut vinyl. And it just, um, I was very pregnant at the time too. So it just, the logistics of it I it made more sense to um, have it cut on a machine but um, you know what happens if a project like that is taken on by hand but you know with a big team of people it's again far more than I could do on my own but um, yeah so that that shift between like the handmade and the mass produced the t- the tiny and the big um, and how those two kind of intersect from time to time living today again you know, I've been noticing, like, even very recently that there's now, I think there's, like, now up to, like, five different, you know, ship to your home and prepare meals. Um, right. You know, like, aside from, um, you know, Blue Apron. But, like, mm-hmm. again, it just strikes me that, you know, more and more we kind of have become reliant on, you know, mass production. Um, you know, and obviously yeah. uh, being a science fiction uh, person um, in my head, I, I think, like, you know, about all of the things like 3D printing today where, you know, some of this stuff might, I mean, very easily be able to be reproduced um, by machines in the future, like in, in terms of even just any kind of art making. Um, so, again, it, it seems like it's interesting in that it almost takes on this, um, I don't know, this different level of practice because it's handmade. Um, yeah. And I guess I'm yeah. just kind of curious, is there, like, especially when it comes to, like, how somebody might, you know, read or see the work or interact with the work, are there any kind of expectations that you have in terms of, like, what, ideally, like, I, I guess what you want people to kind of, um, kind of experience from that or? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I think that with different projects that I've taken on in the last couple of years, um, I kind of see my audience as being somewhat different from one project to the next. So I've done a couple pieces, in, like I said, in the last couple of years that um, have really, like the intended audience is children. Um, and so I think in that case, a close viewing is encouraged and and I think kids are more likely to actually take that on and take that seriously and actually like physically engage with a piece. So I've done a couple pieces that actually have like interactive components and pieces like that you can touch and actually interact with. Um, And so I think that, you know, if I'm making work where the audience is children, um, that feels different than making work that maybe goes in a museum level of interactivity or um, people's inclination to touch things is probably a little bit more limited and, you know, for, for good reason. But, um, 
Yeah, it's always just really interesting to see how different people respond to my work. Um, sometimes I think people like kind of, I don't know, I don't want to say like get frustrated by it, but like think, oh, well, I could totally do that. Like that's, I don't know, which is probably, you know, there's a lot of truth in that. But I think that part of it is just intentionality and actually being the one to do it and the one to commit the time to doing things. I think that making that decision and actually carrying pieces out um, that do require a good deal of time, simply doing it and um, committing to it is you know, part of what the work is all about. Um, whether or not it's something that is simple and how it was executed, I, I don't know. But I think that also it's really interesting to hear from students, um, to hear kind of student feedback, because I think there is oftentimes like an expectation of, you know, what artists make and a lot of our students think well like you know artists depict the world around them um, and using materials like charcoal and paint and and many artists do that but um, but my work doesn't do that and so I think again sometimes they're kind of frustrated or just not sure what to make of it which is fine <laughs> but, but I think it's yeah it's just I don't know I, I think that like Sometimes a frustrated response isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think it just sort of like puts a question mark in your mind. Whereas like, you know, some, I don't know, some of my work might not be, because I think it does begin to verge on things like, like design, like you said. So I think that sometimes people question why it's in the venues it might be in. And, um, and I think that that questioning is a good thing, you know, as opposed to, seeing a piece, acknowledging its familiarity and just moving on. Is there like a lot of expectation in terms of like how how you're working through a piece or is it something then where you're just looking at it very, you know, straightforward, like, well, that's not working. I've got to change this or adjust this. Like, you know, you were talking about, you know, in terms of like thinking about students having these ideas of like, you know, art has to be about something. And I think that's one of the most valuable aspects about the way that you almost kind of work is that or at least from my perspective, it seems like, you know, then they're, they're really, you know, there's this just intensive uh, studio activity and mm-hmm. it's going to be explored to amount to this, this thing, you know, right. and, and again, a, a lot of that I think has to, you know, bring up a lot of resolutions that maybe you didn't expect because you don't have these mm-hmm. attachments to making, making it look like a squirrel or, you know, right. whatever. Yeah, yeah, totally. Although I will say, I was just walking through our art building earlier today and there is a really fantastic squirrel piece on the wall <laughs> downstairs right now. So I have nothing against squirrel art, but um, yeah, I mean, I think that that can like kind of put you in a slightly uncomfortable place if, you know, like, not being able to relate an image to something in the world around us. And then also, like, you know, I really do try to leave room in my working process to uh, explore and play and fail a whole bunch. Um, But usually the way that I do that is I try to work through things on a smaller scale, like just through trials, material trials and process work. Um, And then as things start to gel, then I think about, oh, how could this process be integrated into a larger piece? So um, I try not to fail on a huge scale generally. I try to fail on a small scale and learn from those failures and and also kind of save it all and revisit it later because I think what feels like a real failure on one day um, can feel like 
the solution on another day. So I like to stash things away and revisit them. And yeah, but I, I think like accepting that there isn't this necessarily a super clear vision that I'm working towards um, can kind of be you know, somewhat liberating. And I will say, though, you probably noticed and you alluded to this already, the way that I tend to work does tend to be kind of somewhat exacting. And so I try to find ways to um, build variability into my process so so that things are intentionally kind of imperfect. Um, because I think that when things are overly uniform, that's not really all that interesting either. Mm-hmm. And you, you talked a little bit, obviously, about, you know, we've talked about paper as a primary material, but what yeah. other kind of materials would be in there that uh, maybe some people would be almost surprised at? I mean, and obviously stabbing holes into things, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I would say in the last couple of years, the main materials that I've been working with have been um, plexiglass. And we ha- I have a really great colleague, Brandon Gellis, who's um, generous with his laser cutter and uh, they have all sorts of machinery that I utilize a lot. So I work a lot with plexiglass and I work a lot with vinyl and a paper, of course, and also textiles. I think that, um, you know, I'm really drawn to planar materials, I guess, of all different sorts. And then also a couple years ago, I did a series of pieces that integrated just a wild range of different materials from um, like deconstructed parts of my mother's wedding dress to, this is a little bit gross, but used nursing pads to um, just like bits of trash and um, mm-hmm. integrated them into these really elaborate mandalas. And I, I it's been a couple of years since I've been making, I haven't made that work in a while now, but I, I don't know. I think there was something at the time that really clicked about, like it was a real distinct shift in materials and it was just maybe about a year that I spent um, working with a really wide range of materials. And then I sort of shifted back to some of the materials that I maybe felt more comfortable with. But mm-hmm. um, I think, again, it was more like just life circumstances that that sort of dictated that shift. I um, was, you know, having kids and had a little kid and was pregnant again and just thinking about, I don't I don't know how important objects become in your life and how you form these really emotional attachments to stuff. And I was just admittedly kind of hoarding things and then integrating those hoarded things into the work that I was making. And oddly enough, it, it just feels like that has passed. That doesn't really do it for me at the moment. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think that just your life circumstances and your location and all those things totally impact the kind of materials you use and the work you're making. Is it something then where you might have something that takes a very short amount of time versus maybe one of these, you know, more interactive like projection slash plexiglass slash wall pieces that I don't know, like you have to spend a lot more time with to kind of figure out the work that I made that make that's really labor intensive and made by hand that it just, I think across the board, just, takes time. None of it is really particularly quick. Um, But I will say like some of the bigger projects I've done in the last couple years, like I did a commission for the library here and I'm kind of working on a commission for um, the early uh, childhood education center. 
those take time in a really different way. So those projects take time in the sense that, um, you know, it's sort of working through committees and working through proposals and working through maquettes and working through funding and like all that stuff, which isn't, I don't know, it doesn't really feel like part of the work, but in fact, it really is the reality of making work in public places or like, you know, meeting with engineers or meeting with facilities people or meeting with uh, like coordinating a lift or, you know, things like that, that becomes the time consuming part of uh, some of the bigger pieces that I've been making recently. So I don't know. I mean, I think like, yeah, of course, if I make something that's laser cut, the time goes down in terms of executing it, but then there are all these other variables that come into play that I think are just as much, I mean, like, let's be honest, that's the reality of being an artist. It's not all just kind of working away in your studio. A lot of it is just sort of like applying to things or um, getting funding for something or, you know, all that other stuff that goes into making work and um, and making work that costs mon- like a good chunk of money to make too. Mm-hmm. Well, and I would imagine all of these collaborations and, you know, commissions also kind of help kind of change the direction of the work or turn it in like a slightly different way so that there's always kind of like a new, I guess, a new way to kind of explore something so that you're not stuck in, you know, just some endless series of something. I don't know. I I think there's something really interesting about making work that like just inherently has to involve other people um, because I I don't know I'm definitely an introverted person and my inclination is just to lock myself away in my studio and just be alone but I think it's good uh, you know if you're doing a project where there's a committee that's making selections and recommendations you know they might even if they're not artists they might have feedback or recommendations or think considerations that they might bring up that Uh, I wouldn't think about necessarily. And I think that 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 can be just a really interesting creative challenge to take on. Um, And again, for me, at least, it's a good way to push myself out of my comfort zone of just being alone all the time and working by myself. Yeah, I think there's, um, again, also just something with larger, more public projects in terms of scope that's really exciting, you know, like, more maybe more eyes see it or eyes that wouldn't necessarily go into a museum but might be a different portion of the population so in the upcoming year do you you have like a lot of stuff coming up or projects that you're working on or working towards um you know like i said i do have two little kids right now so my pace of working has i would say slowed in some ways and in our, or just it's just changed, I guess. So I do have some projects coming up. I have a couple shows right now that I'm in. I'm in a show that's just about to open in Hawaii that I'm really excited about. Um, I think in and of itself it'll be a great show, but I think it will hopefully kind of build into um, hopefully a series of exhibitions. I hope it's not just a one-time thing, but it's working with a number of artists, actually international group of artists that um, have sort of like-minded working practices. So I'm excited about that. And then I'm also in a show right now um, at Ohio State University called Labors. And it's all about work uh, that's sort of in response to motherhood. So 
And the, the show in Hawaii is called Material Slip, and the organizer is Wendy Kawabata, who's an associate professor there. Um, and then I have a couple projects, so continuing. So this project with a choreographer based in LA, um, her name is Jessica Kondrath. So the production of this piece that we worked on together has already happened, but we are currently sort of shopping around venues for work that has been made in response to the um, choreographed piece. And we've gotten a couple nibbles, nothing has been confirmed, but we've gotten a couple interested uh, venues. What else? I'm also just going to be, I'm just starting on a collaboration with a woman here at the university. Her name is Karen Vaughn, and she's a um, pedologist, which means she's a soil scientist. Mm -hmm. And we're planning this summer to um, basically harvest fibers, plant-based fibers and animal fibers um, around the region basically make woven pieces. So I'll I'll use uh, plant fibers to make handmade paper and then um, use that to make um, sort of paper weavings. And then she's going to be um, working with animal-based fibers. So um, like sheep, we went up to a sheep farm last week. And so, she, so we're gonna be kind of working together on that. I'm also doing a collaboration with some faculty from um, astronomy and physics and computer science. And I'm working with a student on that project, and that'll probably result in some visual displays at the planetarium, which is kind of interesting. Oh, and then I'm also, um, this isn't so much my own research, but just kind of an exciting thing that I'm a part of right now is um, there's a conference coming up in Laramie this fall. It's going to be in October, and it's the MAPC conference. It's a printmaking conference um, primarily for printmakers and artists in the Midwest, and I'm helping to organize that, um, which is really exciting because, um, like you said, my background is sort of in printmaking, and I just, the thing I miss most about printmaking is the sense of community, so I'm really, really excited about, um, I'm doing a lot of the organizational aspects of that event, but I'm really excited to reconnect with artists. As I mentioned, it's a little isolated here, so it's super exciting to know that people from around the country are going to be congregating here and and that we've got a lot going on with that too yeah it's it sounds like you've got a busy schedule um (laughs) certainly certainly keep yourself active you know um where can people find your work i mean we talked about your website already but you could remind us if uh yeah so my website (laughs) is uh in need of a bit of an update um but i've recently found that instagram is really useful and so easy to use and just kind of keep a I don't know, even just with like in-progress work and whatever. So um, definitely my website, which is just dianabombach.com. Or I also have my work posted on Instagram too, which is maybe a bit more up to date. Um, and you can sort of see some pieces that are still in the works, and um, which I think is always interesting to see, you know, what, what it looks like uh, when pieces aren't necessarily fully resolved, but are just kind of more in progress. So yeah, those would be the two pieces. Well, yeah. excellent uh, to catch up with you again. As I was talking to you about this earlier, I mean, you were you were a studio break guest too, and I feel like I I, I shortchanged uh, the first uh, maybe two years worth of guests just because you know I've slowly gotten better at this. Um, but again, it, it was really fun to connect with you and, and see your studio last summer. Um, but of course, just to kind of catch up with you to see where you're at, um, you know, this year and all the exciting stuff that's going on. So again, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. 
Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I, I'll have to, I don't know, send you some updated images or something in the summer because I feel like, I don't know, it's always so funny to talk about studio practice in the midst of a semester because I just, I don't know, I, I don't, well, you know how it goes. It's hard to find time while classes are actively running, but I don't know. So I, I'm looking forward to the summer when I can like fully dive in and really be in the thick of it. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much, Dave. I really appreciate you reaching out again. Thanks once again to Diana for joining me. You can check out her work at dianabaumbach.com and please follow her on Instagram, D-B-A-U-M-B-A-C. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode, please visit studiobreak.com to find more. Once again, we feature a variety of different artists. They come on and share their work. And, of course, we include images as well as links to their websites. You can, of course, listen right there on studiobreak.com or just click that iTunes hyperlink and subscribe to the podcast, which is a very easy way to stay up to date. Of course, we do hope that you would help us get the word. So please do that via our Facebook account. Once again, please like our page there. You can also do that on Twitter and instagram so follow us at studio break on twitter and at studio underscore break on instagram studio break is made possible in part by generous support from the osage arts community which is a proud sponsor of studio break osage arts community is an artist residency that provides temporary time space and support for the creation of new artistic work in a retreat format Serving creative people of all kinds, including visual artists, composers, poets, fiction, and nonfiction writers. Osage is located on a 180 acre working farm in the rural mountainside setting of central Missouri, bordered by the lovely Gasconade River. OAC provides residencies to those working alone, as well as welcoming collaborative teams, offering living space and workspace in a country environment to emerging and mid career artists. Interested parties should visit Osage Arts Community's website for more information as they are now accepting applications for the 2018 season. Osage Arts Community, where land, art, and community ignite. And last but not least, thanks to Skylar Mail, who provides the music to Studio Break. You can visit his website and see his artwork at SkylarMail.net. If you'd like to see some of my work, please visit davidlinaway.com. There's a number of paintings up there now. And you can, of course, always find me on Facebook, on Twitter, at David Linaway, And, of course, on Instagram, at David Linaway. Lastly, be sure to follow Studio Break on Instagram, at Studio underscore Break. And, of course, we always love hearing from folks, artists, and listeners. So feel free to say hello. With all of that out of the way, thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you real soon.